You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Master Replicas. Find the largest collection of rare Starship models from your favorite franchises like Doctor Who, Alien, Stargate, and of course, Star Trek at MasterReplicas.com. Be the first to know about exclusive drops at MasterReplicas.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 518, The Killing Game. Parts 1 and 2. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Je suis Monsieur Jean. And I am Norman, also known as Mr. Lau. Ah, uh, yes, from the Normandy Normands. Oui, oui. But all I ask is that you leave the war outside. In here, it's only good wine, good entertainment, and deep dives into episodes of Star Trek. Well, as one of your proprietors, it is my honor to welcome the rest of you to our coverage of The Killing Game, Parts 1 and 2, the one in which we'll all be singing La Marseillaise by the end, if the Herogen don't have their way. We'll make like the resistance and see if we can make a beeline for the communications array and decode any incoming messages along with morals and meanings. Normal, why don't you tell everyone how they can reach us? Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Rod and Barry YouTube channel. We'll have trivia for you in a moment, but first, a word about this week's sponsor, and that is you. It Well, it's me. It's you. It's mm-hmm. everybody who has joined us at Mission Log on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash mission log. We haven't talked about that directly in a little while. It's been a minute. So I do want to welcome some of our latest members. Uh, we've got PT. We've got Tracy. We've got Cindy. We've got a podcast of the rings. We've got Anna. We've got Elizabeth. We've got Peter. We have so many people who have joined us over at Patreon. And I think, honestly, one of the biggest benefits, it's not just that you help to support the show and keep this show going and the rest of the Mission Log family shows like Mission Log Prodigy, Mission Log The Orville, Mission Log Live your dollar, your multiple dollars go to keeping all of that alive but it is also very much about the community that has grown there on Discord Norman, Discord has become such a huge part of Mission Log, it truly is where the conversation continues after the show, Mm -hmm. what can people expect to find there? Well, one of the things that's really impressive about our Discord group is we have so many veteran members that they're starting to take ownership you know of content in the group they're creating their own channels and creating their own threads and supporting those with their own type of programming that supports a lot of the feedback that we're getting with so many different can you add this can you add that can we talk about this or that it's just something that uh, when we started our modest little channel like a few years ago we just had star trek and food so, <laughs> <laughs> that was and that, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with right. that. But we have right. live shows every or almost every evening of the week, 
some with John and myself hosting, some with some of our members hosting, but they're always very robust conversations. And we also have a lot of sharing of ideas and convention uh, gatherings and, you know, how to meet up with fellow Star Trek fans or fans of your fandom. So it is a very dynamic experience. And it's all because of all of you, our members. And I think, honestly, one of the most important things about it, uh, a lot of us are really burnt out by traditional social media, traditional for a, a a platform that is really, honestly, not that old in the greater scheme of things. But, but if a lot of us have become burnt out on social media today, our Discord channel is a place that is moderated, it is supportive, it is full of friendship and camaraderie around these shared ideas and interests. So join us there. You can get full access to the Mission Law discord by joining us today at patreon.com slash mission log again that is patreon.com slash mission log and now here's monsieur jean champion with this week's trivia Merci, merci beaucoup. Uh, well, here we go. The Killing Game, parts one and two. Both parts of The Killing Game are credited to the same writer team of Brandon Braga and Joe Minoski. You probably saw this one coming <laughs> with our previous discussions of Brandon ushering along the development of the Herogen as an enemy. But what about Joe? Where does he fit into this? Well, he did and does have a reputation of tackling some pretty off-the-wall ideas. And in this case, he had returned to the U.S. to work full-time as a writer-slash-producer on Voyager after living in France and other parts of Europe for a few years. And while there, he found himself consuming a lot of media that dealt with World War II and its aftermath. The ideas stuck, and he had been kicking around some sort of World War II scenario for Voyager since early in the show's run. He just didn't know how to explore it until he and Brannon got to work with the next place to take the Herogen story. Part one was directed by Trek veteran and friend of the show, David Livingston. Part two is directed by Victor Loby. Now, this is only one of two episodes of Voyager that Victor contributes to the franchise, but we certainly can't forget that he helmed four episodes of DS9, including the seminal In the Pale Moonlight. As is sometimes the case with Mission Log, we made a decision to cover this two-parter as a single podcast. That's usually due to the theming or messages within an episode that make it easier to cover as one. In this case, The Killing Game was certainly written together as a complete story by Brannon and Joe, but even in the broadcast, well, this was one that was treated a bit special. At one time, it was considered to drop this as a single feature-length episode, not unlike the series pilot, Caretaker. That idea was dropped early, though, and it was decided to air both episodes in a single night back-to-back. -back. That was a first for Star Trek. The episode has been aired since as a feature, most notably when it premiered in the UK. Now, there is some beautiful set design, costume design, and great backlot filming. Yes, you may recognize the European streets because, well, they are quite famous. Those are the European streets of Universal Studios' backlot. They have looked the same for decades, and the tram still passes by there on the tour. If you go back and watch some of the original Universal monster movies like Dracula and Frankenstein, they will look familiar, but... 
Those facades burned down in 1967. They were rebuilt as a replica of the original and still get a lot of use up to today. So that's what we're seeing in this episode. This episode did get an Emmy nomination for hairstyling. Did not win. Let's meet our guest stars. We've got a lot of them, both real and hologram, and a few repeat players. Paul Eckstein, playing a young Herogen, has been a guest player under heavy alien prosthetics ever since DS9 when he first turned up as a Jem'Hadar in Rocks and Shoals as one of the marooned Jem'Hadar. He's been back as Jem'Hadar. He will play a Klingon later in Voyager's run, and we will see him again in a familiar guise as well. There's a Herogen medic played by Mark Metcalf. This is Mark's only Trek credit, but he has been in so many iconic projects. He had an eight-episode run on Buffy as the master. He was in the cult classic John Cusack movie One Crazy Summer, and he is Niedermeyer in National Lampoon's Animal House. Mark has been in the biz since the early 1970s. A holographic Nazi captain is played by J. Paul Bomer. He first appeared for us on DS9 as well as a Cardassian in the episode Tacking into the Wind. He'll be back several more times on Star Trek as alien characters, his voice in video games, and his face fully recognizable when he appears again as yet more German World War II officers. We're catching Mark Deacon's Star Trek debut in this episode as the Beta Herogen Tourange. Mark has made a number of short films and used his voice talents in video games in addition to multiple TV guest roles. He'll be back in a different role in two more Voyager episodes, and we did see him once before in a small role in the film Star Trek Insurrection. As the Herogen in charge, the Alpha named Carr, we have Danny Goldring, who also got his Trek debut in DS9. He appeared as a Cardassian in Civil Defense, then in his much more recognizable human face in Nor the Battle to the Strong. He'll be back for two more appearances on Enterprise. Sadly, we lost Danny in 2022. Welcome to the Delta Quadrant, where we combine the thrill of the hunt with some strange cosplay choices. Part 1. Prologue. A female Klingon warrior fights for her life against two of her own kind. As she parries several killing blows from their batliths with her mechlith, another warrior enters the fray. However, he is not a Klingon. He is a Herogen. Dressed in Klingon armor, he thrusts his detock into the female warrior's stomach. As she lies dying, the Herogen uses a Starfleet combat and contacts Voyager's sickbay, reporting that Captain Janeway is in Holodeck 2 and requires medical assistance. Act 1. Voyager is being escorted through space by several Herogen vessels. In Voyager's sickbay, Janeway, now human again, is being tended to by a Herogen medic who confirms that she is fine and that her neural interface is working properly. The Herogen commander, Carr, orders his medic to make her ready for the next holographic simulation, a conflict from Janeway's own planet's history. Inside Holodeck 1, we are now in Nazi-occupied France during World War II, specifically inside the French café La Cour de Lyon in the town of Saint-Clair. Captain Janeway, now Catherine in this simulation, is the host and proprietor of this establishment. Filled with an assortment of customers from Nazi officers to dilettantes, 
because sooner or later, everybody comes to Katrine's. Tuvok tending bar seems to be Katrine's eyes and ears. Seven of nine, as Mademoiselle Deneuf commands attention on stage, her beauty rivaled only by her singing voice. To add to the final complication to the simulation, Carr enters as the local Nazi commandant, rumored to be as ruthless as he is efficient. Carr seems to enjoy immersing himself in the role, but his second-in-command, Tarange, impatiently humors his superior, believing that all of this is superfluous nonsense in the Herogen hunt. Unbeknownst to Carr, in this holodeck story, Janeway, Tuvok, and Seven are all part of the French resistance, dedicated to dismantling the Nazi stranglehold on this small French town. After closing the cafe and securing it from prying eyes, Katrine's resistance cell tallies the evening's profits so that Deneuf can secretly meet with a supplier to buy a much-needed radio component. However, much like the real-life personalities, both Katrine and Deneuf are constantly at odds with each other, an observation that naturally concerns Tuvok the bartender. Act 2. The next day, Neelix, appearing as a simple free-spirited bike messenger with side carts filled with bread and wine, is stopped mid-delivery by Tarange. The Herogen and his fellow human Nazi officer harass Neelix, ransacking his groceries in search of signs of the elusive French resistance. Meanwhile, at the cafe, Bellata, now the pregnant French resistance fighter Brigitte, attempts to decipher a coded message disguised in plain hearing amidst a ubiquitous weather report. Neelix arrives with the bottle of wine intact, having preserved the crucial label that Tarange discarded earlier. Katrine needed this label, which, when peeled off, reveals the cipher to decode the Allied weather report. It contains a message from Allied High Command instructing them to invade Sinclair in two days, but requiring the resistance to disable Nazi communications. Brigitte believes she can help, leveraging her relationship with her Nazi lover, the father of her child, stationed at Nazi High Command in the city. Brigitte believes she can exploit this relationship for their advantage, and indeed, she does. At Nazi High Command, a human Capitan is questioned by Carr regarding his beliefs in the superiority of the master race. The Capitan, confused by Carr's inquiries, is saved from further embarrassment as Brigitte is escorted into his office. Having feigned dizziness moments ago, she is brought directly to her special friend. After Carr leaves, the Capitan gives Brigitte a quick tour of his new post and office, where she makes mental notes upon confirming the communication station that the Allies need destroyed. Elsewhere, Tarange's impatience boils over, and he begins shooting at Neelix. Seven's Deneuf saves him, grabbing both of them and hurting them down an abandoned alleyway. However, the Herogen hunter's prowess is superior, and he corners them, ultimately gunning them down. Much like Captain Janeway before, they are removed from the holodeck and taken to sickbay to be patched up and recycled back into the hunt. Act 3 as he has done so for most of the crew in the past three weeks, the doctor tends to Seven and Neelix and pleads with a Herogen medic to cease these brutal simulations, emphasizing that human bodies weren't built for this kind of constant punishment. The doctor tries to make the case for at least turning on the holodeck safety protocols to prevent fatal injuries, but his plea falls on Carr's unsympathetic Herogen ears. Neelix is designated for the Klingon simulation and Seven for World War II because Carr enjoys Deneuve's voice. Returning to the bridge, it appears that the Herogen have complete control over the ship, not just the systems, but of the spared crew as well. A physically beaten but not broken, Harry Kim has been tasked with expanding the breadth and scope of the holodecks so that the Herogen can run more and more simulations. 
Harry says the power grid can't take much more of this, but again, Carr ignores his warnings and only wants more and more hollow emitters installed shipwide. While upgrading one of his relays, Kim has his fellow ops tech Ashmore distract a guard just long enough for Harry to transport the doctor for a face-to-face strategy meeting. Harry has a plan to neutralize the Hirogen neural emitters, but they need someone on the inside of the simulation to engage the bridge control relays. Meanwhile, in Carr's ready room, which has been decorated to accommodate a more Hirogen aesthetic, he finally confines in Tarange as to the breadth and depth of his plan. Carr believes that the Hirogen are a lost people, devoid of a cultural identity. He thinks that the hunt, as the sole legacy of his people, will be their undoing. However, with Voyager's holographic technology, Carr believes he can maintain their cultural identity while also building a new foundation for the survival of his people, more than just their current nomadic and isolationist existence. Tarange is eventually persuaded to support Carr, but is still somewhat uneasy at this proposal. Act 4. The Doctor brings Seven up to speed on Harry's plan to deactivate the neural emitters that keep Janeway and the others under the spell of the holodeck simulation. Seven's mission, should she choose to accept it, is to locate the holodeck control panel that connects to the bridge relays. Once engaged, Harry will be able to deactivate all the neural implants. Oh, and Seven, try to fit in as best as you can in a little French cafe during World War II on Earth, where you've never been, ever. This message will self-destruct in five, four, three... While in the midst of a rendition of That Old Black Magic, Mademoiselle de Neuf pauses for a moment as Seven of Nine's independence comes online. However, she manages to excuse herself from the spotlight and tries to get her bearings, arousing suspicion from an already suspicious Tuvok the bartender. Elsewhere, Allied forces led by Chakotay as Captain Miller and Tom Paris as Bobby Davis are finalizing their plans to liberate Sinclair. Miller is skeptical of their chances since they haven't heard any message from the Resistance, but Bobby swears that these people will fight and die for their town. He knows these people, especially a local girl he fell in love with named Brigitte years ago when he was stationed there. That evening, Katrine's resistance fighters prepare to assault the Nazi command center, but Seven's erratic behavior continues to rouse suspicion from Katrine, who needs her demolitions expert to be focused and ready to complete their mission. Act 5. Harry is finalizing his plan, using the replicator in the mess hall as command terminal and as cover from prying eyes. However, the all-too-paranoid Tarange barges in with an armed guard and demands to know where a communication signal originated in the mess hall. Harry doubles down and bluffs his way out of a very dangerous confrontation by pushing any failure for Harry to complete Carr's orders as Tarange's fault. He pushes past them and makes his way to the bridge where he initiates phase one of his plan. Now, the doctor needs to activate his phase of the plan, and the Hirogen medic is unable to stop him from activating his console, which means the final sequence is now up to seven. Shortly after the resistance fighters secure the entrance of the Nazi stronghold, Katrine and Seven make their way to the captain's office. After knocking out the radio officer, Katrine is distracted with an incoming message. Seven uses this opportunity to find the holodeck consoles behind a stack of nearby books. As she engages them, Katrine is ready to shoot Seven on sight, but Harry is able to cut the connection to the neural transmitters, effectively waking up Janeway immediately and not a moment too soon. Seven gets Janeway up to speed as the building is rocked by explosions. How? Well, while they were knocking out the comm systems, Captain Miller and his platoon called in an airstrike from the outside perimeter. That's U.S. Army for... Run! 
Seven and Janeway barely make it out of the compound as it explodes into a massive fireball, rocking not only the surrounding perimeter, but Voyager's bridge as well. Carr demands to know what's happening, and Harry tells him that a holographic explosion has blown out and ruptured the hologrid across three decks. And what looks like a hole torn through the side of a mountain, the remainder of what Voyager's crew, who are still under the influence of the neural transmitters, stare at what appears to be the insides of an enemy bunker. Captain Miller's forces charge the opening and wage open warfare against the Nazis and the Herogen in the battleground that has spilled into the heart of Voyager. Part 2. Prologue. The battle is joined, within and without the confines of the holodeck. Deck-wide hollow emitters allow holographic soldiers, both allied and Nazi forces alike, to skirmish through the breach, pouring the combat into the very corridors of Voyager herself. Janeway and Seven manage to fight their way to Astrometrics, but need to overtake a very heavily fortified sickbay in order to wake the crew from the Herogen's neurotransmitters. It's time to call in the cavalry and take the fight to the enemy. Act 1. As the chaos continues to spread through the breach and across the ship, Harry implores Carr to let him generate a power surge to wipe out the entire hollow emitter network, effectively blowing out the system, but also ending the raging war that is engulfing Voyager internally. But Carr refuses in order to preserve the holodeck technology that he knows is his people's only salvation. Tehran storms in and believes that all prey should be summarily eliminated, which would end the conflict the Herogen way. Carr orders his second to capture the Voyager crew who are alive so that they can repair the ship's systems before all is lost. Tarange takes his leave to gather his hunters from the Klingon simulation. Back at the cafe, and still programmed to play their individual parts, Chakotay, Tom, Balana, and Tubok have no explanation for what they saw after the Nazi headquarters was destroyed in the explosion. Captain Miller believes it to be some kind of Nazi weapons bunker. Bobby and Brigitte steal away a quiet moment to reacquaint their long-lost romance, after a fashion, as she tries to explain away her pregnancy and her relationship with the local Nazi Kapitan. However, they are different people and now have different duties, but there is still something between them. The resistance cell is startled by a disturbance behind the bar. Captain Janeway, still known to her allies as Katrine, crawls through a hidden doorway with Seven right behind. Once she and Captain Miller exchange pleasantries, Miller tells her that he can call in an airstrike and end this whole affair. Katrine has another option, one that is less loud and with far fewer casualties. And before they disappear back into the barback tunnel, Katrine tells Tuvok that Deneuf is no traitor, as far as she is concerned. Tuvok will decide for himself when the time comes. Act 2. As the war rages on in the corridors across Voyager, more and more wounded are pouring into sickbay, human and Herogen alike. The doctor is ordered to treat Herogen wounded first, even if they are far less injured than the others. Appalled, the doctor protests but is deactivated by the Herogen medic who takes charge of treatment priority in sickbay. Neelix is several blood wine skins deep, as his character is programmed to be in the Klingon warrior simulation. After crawling through a series of Jeffrey's tubes to reach a specific holodeck, Miller pays Janeway the compliment of being impressed by her gung-ho kind of girl. When they finally arrive at the Klingon simulation, Neelix and several others offer Miller a drink and a seat by their fire to prove his worth. Janeway uses this distraction to activate the doctor for a status update. He tells her that the only way to free the crew is to destroy the surgical console controls in sickbay. Janeway shows him her sack of World War II-era explosives and explains that with the safety protocols offline, they are as good as the real thing. With the Klingons on board as their reinforcements, Janeway and Captain Miller, Jeffries tube their way to plant the explosives under sickbay. The only catch? There's a level 9 force field standing in the way. 
Janeway tries to infiltrate sickbay to turn off the controls, but is intercepted by the Hirogen medic, who moments earlier pleaded with Carr to turn on the safety protocols before more of the Hirogen are hurt or killed. Captain Miller escorts the medic outside, but is fired on by nearby Hirogen. The medic doubles back and shoots Janeway, but not before she turns off the force field and barely escapes sickbay before the room explodes. Back in the cafe, the crew reacts to a searing pain in their necks. They all regain their own identities just in time to be captured by Tarange, the Capitan, and their cadre of Nazi soldiers. Act 3. Tarange reports to Carr that the Voyager crew's neural interfaces have all been disabled. Waiting for the kill order, Tarange is denied his desire, as Carr wants them alive as hostages and, as before mentioned, the only ones who can repair the damaged hollow emitter technology. Tarange also discovers and seals off Janeway's emergency tunnel exit. The Capitan expresses his disgust with Bellana and slaps her, goading Tom into defending her honor. The Capitan takes aim with his pistol, but like Tarange, he is ordered to keep the prisoners alive. Back in the Klingon simulation, Neelix, no longer under the influence of the simulation, has lost his Klingon-ness. But to the hollow Klingons, he is still their leader and will either lead the attack or die with dishonor by the hands of his own men. When Janeway is brought to her own ready room, Carr applauds her effort in attempting to retake her ship. He wants her to repair the extensive damage that has been done to the holodecks, and in a response that you can set your clocks to, Janeway threatens to destroy the ship before she surrenders it. Carr is nonplussed and explains in great detail that what he is trying to achieve with these holographic experiences is all for the benefit of his people, to provide them with a new way of life and the means of continuing their cultural identity, free from the nomadic and isolationist lifestyle of the Great Hunt that currently scatters his people across the galaxy. He also admits to having a fondness for human resilience, a trait he's come to appreciate during the course of his experiments with them in the simulations. Janeway comes to an understanding with Carr and offers to help him build that new future for the Herogen if he lets Voyager go and calls a ceasefire between their peoples. Back in the cafe, Tarange forces Seven to sing to entertain them all, but she refuses and promises him that when the Borg eventually assimilate the Herogen, to remember her in this moment. However, when Carr orders Tarange to withdraw all forces and cease fire, he becomes dismayed that his commander is consorting with a lesser species, a belief that the Capitan knows all too well and exploits in Tarange, who is moved by his dogmatic pursuit of ethnic purity. Act 4. Tuvok successfully reaches Chakotay, who technically remains in command of Captain Miller's allied forces. Chakotay orders his troops to cease fire and initiate a general retreat. A lightness permeates the air as Tom Paris, walking alongside Seven, immerses himself in his 20th century persona, relishing the romanticism of the time, much to Seven's chagrin. The ceasefire, however, is short-lived, as the Capitan's forces defy Carr's orders and aggressively advance on the allied forces. Meanwhile, in the Klingon simulation, the Doctor and Neelix observe the half-drunk Klingons feasting. The Doctor, convinced that even inebriated Klingons remain the most formidable warriors, and persuades Neelix to embrace his former and formidable Klingon character, demanding honor and obedience without treating them like kittens. Janeway and Carr survey the extensive damage caused by Carr's forced modifications to the hollow emitter network. With Harry's assistance, they coordinate a power surge intense enough to shut down the system and terminate all current simulations. Suddenly, Tarange strides into engineering and efficiently executes Carr with two precise shots from a German rifle. Janeway, now his prey, is allowed to flee. After giving her a head start, he follows, and the hunt continues. Act 5. 
The Allied forces realize they are outgunned and outflanked, with more Herogen forces reinforcing the Capitan's position. The Voyager crew can't approach the breach for an escape. Seven attempts to modify a grenade to neutralize all nearby holographic activity, but before completion, she's gunned down and the grenade explodes, vaporizing the crew's weapons and holographic allies. The Capitan forces Chakotay and the crew to surrender, lining up the resistance fighters against the wall. All except Balana are spared as she's pregnant with a German child. But the Klingons appear, turning the tables and joining the fight against the German forces. On Voyager, Janeway, injured and limping, plays a cat-and-mouse game with Tarange. She encounters a soldier half-camouflaged by an invisible tear in the holographic field. Janeway has an idea. Tarange closes in, momentarily distracted by the energy field. Seizing the opportunity, Janeway attacks, disarming him. She trains his own rifle on him as the hunter becomes the hunted. Tarange finds himself atop the breach and Janeway gives him the chance to surrender. He chooses death before dishonor and Janeway shoots him, causing him to plummet to his doom. Simultaneously, Harry overloads the emitters, making all soldiers flicker and disappear, bringing an end to the simulations. Through diplomatic talks, Janeway and the Herogen decide to part ways and honor what Carr set in motion. Both sides agree to a ceasefire and a truce. Janeway extends a final olive branch to the surviving Herogen leadership, an optronic data core, enabling them to build their own holodeck technology for stable hunting environments. The future of the Herogen literally lies in their hands. The end. Norman, nice job on the recap game of the killing game one and two. <laughs> Thank you. It's a lot of story, a lot, lot of story, a lot of details. Yeah. So let's dive in. Uh, man, I, it kind of disoriented me <laughs> the very beginning because I, I knew that I had watched this one before, but then there were a lot of details that I had forgotten and I forgot that we opened with Janeway as a Klingon and I found that disconcerting. <laughs> I found, you know, and then and then cut to a Herogen as a Klingon, which was a very interesting choice. So I, I kind of appreciate the disorientation right away. Yeah, I do love seeing like Janeway in Klingon armor because I'm not sure how many times we're going to see this like later on. Mm-hmm. But I've always thought that Klingon weapons were all bladed because they're aggressive that way. And when she picked up a mace, that's usually not a cutting weapon. It's a bludgeoning weapon. Yeah. So I thought it was an interesting choice for a Klingon because she's in a Klingon simulation. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. But it, and I guess she, yeah, in the simulation, she thinks she's a Klingon. Eh, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when we get into A Coeur de Lyon, Seven as the 1940s femme fatale was just very perfect and looked very Veronica Lake. I mean, she was sort of like an amalgam of all these 1940s stars right. like that. Mm-hmm. So that, that was cool. But even more than that, I love the little details of the jewelry and her dress to still carry over that Borg look. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really clever. Yeah, and I love Janeway's white tuxedo. Obviously, like, you know, homaging Uh, Rick's white smoking jacket. I've Uh seen that cosplay at conventions and and so impeccably well. It's It's just a beautiful costume. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of Ray, of course, we're referencing Casablanca as they do in this movie, uh, t- tangentially. I mean, not not very specifically, but tangentially. And the, the whole thing with, you know, leave the war outside, and she's just a simple bartender that's very Rick's Cafe American. Do you think it would have been too on the nose if Tuvok was playing the piano like Sam because they're both? <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah, you kind of expect it. Yeah. yeah. I've always wondered in either this series or other series, when you go so far as doing like the most like picture perfect. SS uniform. Yeah. Why is it devoid of the swastika armband? Why not just go for it? 
That's a good question. I, I don't know if there were versions of that uniform that historically did not have that, but I, I kept, in rewatches, I kept trying to see where did they either play up or maybe play down the symbology, just because that is a choice, A, to be historically accurate, but maybe B, to not just overwhelm the visual. So I, mm. I kind of, I wondered that too. Yeah. She has a, Kate, uh, Janeway, Catherine has a throwaway line, more escargot for table nine. And I was thinking, what kind of place is this? Because it's not like get more bread or get more water for table wine. Just like, what, bring them a whole order of escargot? This is the thing that you can do because I want to go to that restaurant. Not really? Yeah, yeah. Also, side note, Chateau La Tour 29 is very expensive. <laughs> but if you find yourself with a bottle, it is almost undrinkable. Like, if you're an expert, you might be able to tell what the quality is. But it's getting to that point that you just wouldn't be able to drink. You can pick one up, though, between like six and $9,000 if Oof. you want. And truly, the 1936 is cheaper if you're looking for a, a budget yeah, option. But the 29 or the 44 45 was prime. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It would have been absolutely perfect, perfect to have at that time. Yeah. yeah. The 36 right now, I think you can find between about three and $5,000. Mm. So, you know, knock yourself out. Yeah. Um, we'll serve it at the next Vegas party. There you go. Now, Holodeck Logic, I don't know how deeply you want to get into it in this episode. Holodeck Logic, just I, who sees whom as what species? Because there is the reality of what's happening on Voyager. There's the reality in the holodeck, but you also have aliens as Nazis and you have humans and a Borg human as French resistance fighters. They're all seeing each other, I guess, exactly the way the game wants them to be seen. There's a lot to swallow when it comes to that logic, and I think that we're all retconned oh, it in yes. a way where it all makes sense, just because if it doesn't make sense, it takes too long to make sense, and then we won't be watching anything, right? I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I yeah. guess. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, you were, you were making mention of, like, uh, Seven's, or I should say, uh, Mademoiselle Denis, you know, accoutrement. Yeah. I love the way that Janeway and Seven play off each other in the holodeck sequence, but I do have a problem with that everyone in the holodeck sequence slips into their actual real life cadence with each other. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to talk about that later in discussion. Yeah, it is cleverly done. Yeah. Uh, let's see, we see Neelix with a bottle of uh, Carte de Chambre, which is a real wine and real region. And I love the uh, the weather broadcast yeah. sending the coded messages, a very real thing yep. from World War II. So the, very cool. I love the the French resistance stuff, like the map behind the painting and then Neelix, like, mm -hmm. you know, exacting off the label to give the cipher to Janeway and to, yeah. and to Catherine and Brigitte. But mm -hmm. it, speaking of Brigitte, it's interesting how they fit her <laughs> pregnancy into this story. Uh, yeah. But not, not just her pregnancy, but, okay, so she has a romantic relationship, quote-unquote, you know, with the Nazi captain. Mm -hmm. It reminded me a lot. She reminded me a lot of M. Beth David's character from Schindler's List and her relationship mm. with Ralph Fiennes' captain in that movie. Yeah. It, they, like, visually look very similar. Yeah, I, I thought of it as a relationship of convenience, but it, clearly it was an intimate one. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and, which again also kind of ripped from history. Mm -hmm. Great suit on Tuvok. Oh my god, yeah. does he look good in that kind of dark red pinstripe? Wow, mm -hmm. really nice. Very interesting confrontation between our Herogen Alpha uh, car and the Nazi captain. I, I wonder, do the Herogen actually only hunt armed, equally matched prey? Because 
I keep seeing in this huge armor with these huge weapons, and yet <laughs> they're ready to take on the crew of Voyager. And I, I just, I, I wondered, like, is Carr the only one who thinks that? Or maybe he's just trying to instill that. He, he's trying to justify that he thinks that way. I, but yeah, it's like, yeah, maybe we'll get into that. It's like a historical lesson, you know, in the context of the hunt. You know, he's trying to understand, like, mm-hmm. why did you do this? What? But it, it's very difficult to, to try and wrap your brain around. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing. So I love weapons and armor. And I love uh, if when, you know, the, the armory on set, you know, or the prop masters, you know, they give their actors the most accurate weapons possible. Now, the Walther P-38 that uh, Tehran that used to gun down Neelix, that's accurate to the time. But, yeah, and I'd love to hear from your historians out there, but yeah. a Nazi Schutzstaffel officer, an SS officer, would have favored the PP, the Walther PP, as oh. their particular weapon of choice because it is a concealable weapon over the P-38. Yeah. But the thing is, I think that they, the P-38 is closer to the Luger, which is more Nazi-looking, yeah. you know, and yeah. then the PPK is obviously more associated with James Bond, who's a hero. Right. Yeah, right. good point. So Good point, yeah. I, I do like how the uh, the Herogen, I guess, they, they like to play dress-up in this case. You know, Carr, he's a Klingon, then he's a Nazi. Um, and I wondered if that even was necessary in these simulations, because, again, the simulations, you just sort of see whatever it is you're going to see in the logic of the game. So, yeah. But I, I love these shots of him, like, on the bridge and other places on Voyager wearing the uh, the Klingon uniform. You know, be, That's a good mashup I'd like to see at uh, a convention. You know, it'd be even cooler, uh, Klingon in Herogen armor. I think that would be cooler. Oh, yeah, you very know. nice, yeah. And uh, welcome to Harry Kim, holodeck expert. Yeah. He teased this, of course, where he's trying to create a new EMH. Maybe he's just better at the, the mechanics, the logistics of the holodeck implementation, right. not so much the programming. Yeah, you know? you're going to put up a couple of like webcams here, going to put up a couple routers here, that kind of thing. Like, Don't mm-hmm. ask him to actually program the software. Just This is the hardware. I'm good at hardware. He's also good at like yeah. Yeah. the uh, whole, I'm an expert in not wanting to get beat up. Right? Yes. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. <laughs> I love the representation in the scene with him and Ashmore. You have an Asian man and a black man working together to try and beat an enemy. You know? Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Like, in the spirit of a resistance. You know, everyone yeah. from all walks of life will come together to try and defeat the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. I love this shot in sickbay, this very rudimentary Borg on the computer display. Wait, no, it's not in – it's in uh, the ready room. Yeah, yeah. Where Cara's, uh, Cara yeah. is showing this like, mm-hmm. yeah, look what I've just looked up. And you see this very like, you know, MS Paint yeah. <laughs> image of a Borg. Um, it was still very cool though to to have him reference like, oh, we'll, we'll recreate Wolf 359. But then I wondered, would the Herogen be playing as Starfleet? Or as Herogen crashing this party, or as Borg, you know. Well, Wolf Three Five Nine was a it was a space battle, not a land battle. So would they be just mm-hmm. you know what I mean? They'd be fighting ship to ship. Yeah. And I don't think the Herogen can be taking on a Borg cube anytime soon. I unless they beam over and just think like, oh, okay, we can just kill a bunch of Borg. But I think yeah. they would be in for a big surprise. You know anything like about like just saying the words Wolf Three Five Nine? It yeah. says so much with so little because a history built up from best of both worlds. It's amazing. The economy of yes. scale of, of that of that just actual name. I, one little note here. I really like the variations in the makeup 
on the Herogen that we spend time with in this episode. Because I think before it didn't really, really matter. Like if you've got Tony Todd, you've got Tony Todd. Right. And you just, he's immediately recognizable by voice. Mm-hmm. But now, uh, you, you know, Carr looks older than Tarange and the, the coloring and the details a little bit different. Um, and I think now we know why they didn't spend a lot of money on the makeup budget in retrospect. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, So that was kind of cool. And by the way, 19 days they've been at it. That is pretty impressive. And apparently they ran a simulation of the Crusades at one point. And I kept thinking, this is why this episode should be a comic book. Because I (laughs) would have loved to have seen that. Do the Crusades, do the Civil War, do the Revolution, do whatever. World War I. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love Jerry's performance when she switches from Mademoiselle de Neuf to Seven. There's just yes, a wonderful that, Matrixy kind of moment when that happened. Yeah. It, it's that and like this moment of vulnerability, which is really interesting that she plays very well, too. Mm-hmm. All right. So question for you again, Holodeck Logic. Is the computer making Seven sing? Because... She believes she is the character as long as the neural interface is working, but she's she's just believing then that she knows all the words and can hit all the notes because it seems like you need some prompting, you'd need some knowledge there. I don't there's a lot of holodeck knowledge or holodeck logic mm-hmm. rather that may not fit. We we best not look too hard at it. I did read in that um that Jerry sang those pieces. Yes, yeah. she did, and she did very phenomenally, well. phenomenally good singer. Mm-hmm. So, would Jacoti in a holodeck simulation have his tattoo? Again, with the whole you know holodeck yeah. logic uh, of it. Also, yeah. Captain Miller it was Tom Hanks's character's name in Saving Private Ryan. Oh, so okay. I'm just wondering cool. if they're just kind of like you know sharing some of that same energy with the whole you know yeah. World War II was a very hot topic at that time. Yeah, yeah. Love that shot in the tent where you start off on the portrait of uh, President Roosevelt, and then you reveal Chakotay. And I I think all of them look really good as GIs. And by the way, just the whole cast, all of this would have made great action figures. People out there, get on that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, get on it, please. Man, you mentioned Harry Kim earlier, and he activates smart-ass mode, too, with those Herogen. <laughs> really good to see. Yeah, it was nice to yeah. see um, Garrett and Harry flex a little bit, and I'm glad that he was given mm-hmm. a little bit of a meatier part that isn't compromised by a bad joke. Wait a second. There's a second yeah. part that we got to get yes. to, so we'll, we'll talk about yeah. that later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And, and then hilarious to me, the Holodeck One access enabled is just this like huge 200 point type broadcast all <laughs> over the computer. Display. What's he doing over there? I can't see it. I can't read what he's doing. Oh my God. <laughs> like, and think about how hard it was to get a computer readout on the Prometheus. But here on Voyager's like, oh, we're just going to telegraph everything that's happening. Right. Klingon Neelix. Wow. That, that is an interesting look i dig it that, i will just say that I okay it. i dig it all right I dig it. um all right when the doctor is being restrained you know when he has to do his phase at the end mm-hmm. can he just like disappear instead of actually being physically restrained by anything i thought he i know i thought he just boom just like phase out yeah. and he would be fine yeah yeah all right let's talk about the most important thing here tuvok with a machine gun right how do i get this movie mm-hmm. yeah okay so i want it here's our album name for today Machine yeah. Gun Tuvok. Because Machine Gun Tuvok is best Tuvok. 
Yes, hands down. <laughs> Dude, the way that Tim hands. was strafing with that submachine gun was so oh sexy. God. So, so sexy. good. Yeah. So good. Yep. Yeah. I, I just, <laughs> I, I hand, yeah. Loved Tip it. Tip of the hat. Loved Tim. it. So good. Yeah. Big, you know, episode ender, the explosion of Nazi HQ. Eh. You didn't like I, it? I mean, look, I, I, well, look, I, I hate to be that guy. I'll be that guy. Because I think the, oh, okay, the it. effect itself I think is impressive. It's very cool. The, the composite with Janeway and Seven jumping away, that was just some, uh, obviously it was green screen because it had to be. Yeah. It, it was just not great. So it took me out of it for a moment. Okay, I got you. I got you. I applaud the ambition. Yeah. I applaud the ambition, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. But I did coming back, and again, it's kind of a you know a very '90s CG effect. But it's very impressive to see the holodeck spread out into those multiple decks of Voyager, and the pieces cut away. And it's like a cutaway I, it, it poster. Me wonder, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it really was. Yeah, yeah. Um, it did make me wonder what sections of Voyager got demolished True. during all of this erosion takeover. But it was cool. So the Nazis that Janeway and Seven take out in the corridor. Were they part of the Nazi compound that got destroyed and just survived or, you know, and then the emitters in all of those hallways probably were blown out. And also, what was the one that was doing an astrometrics? What was he doing in astrometrics? How did he get there and why was he at the panel? That was like, why would you put an emitter in there? But there he is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for the sole reason of Janeway taking his rifle, but she could have picked up a rifle from anywhere. Exactly. You know? yeah, it was a very, uh, you know, Star Wars detention block on the Death Star kind of true. moment. True, true, <laughs> You know, I, I really like, and I kind of mentioned it before, I like everything staying in context for the characters in the holodeck mm-hmm. who are living the reality of the game. Like, they don't recognize Voyager's deck, and they just think it's a something that their recon missed. I, I loved all those little details of them trying to justify it. Yeah, yeah. I, I love when all of the textures collide so you have car wearing mm-hmm. klingon armor you have tarange wearing nazi uh, a nazi uniform and then you have like harry yeah. kim wearing his voyager outfit on the bridge there's just yeah. so much stuff going on it's like it's it's yes. overwhelming but at the same time kind of cool you know kind of kind of cool yeah, yeah yeah exactly good classic film references that that was night of course tom and balana aren't tom and balana at the time they're living the reality of the time but i thought that was cool to work in a bit of that i thought it would have been more interesting if all of these characters didn't play their own type you know because mm-hmm. it's just a holographic mm-hmm. simulation like they could have been anything it would have been interesting like say for example if they mm-hmm. really wanted to lean into kind of like a very risque, maybe kind of, you know, uh, casting decision, mm-hmm. they could have gone with like, say, what if Neelix and Tuvok were in a relationship? Oh, right. Just completely mix it up. Yeah. Because you have the opportunity to do it. Exactly. Yeah. But they see each other as like these two that. characters. I do love Janeway popping out of the microwave door. That was kind of cool. <laughs> I was waiting for like a bunch of popcorn to follow her. Right. right? I mean, seriously, it was a microwave <laughs> door. That's you know, exactly what it looks like. Behind like. a bar. <laughs> that yeah. is awesome. Yeah. I love that. Now, if the medic, as he does in this scene, takes the doctor offline, saying like, well, you know, go treat these burns first instead of treating the one with uh, internal bleeding. Right. Well, the doctor isn't going to be treating anybody. Right. At that point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. when he's deactivated, his patient died. Right. Yeah, right. He's got to. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we don't know exactly what the body count is uh, in this episode because it's been 19 days. We know that some have died, but 
Yeah, it it seems that Voyager has lost some crew members. Mm-hmm. Got to say, the Klingons compared to the Herogen, the Klingons are just fun. They're they're just partiers. They were partying a lot by that campfire. I'm going to say something controversial. Mm -hmm. This is my hot take on it. I'm not sure if you're going to agree with me or not, but Klingon Neelix is best Neelix. Whoa. Whoa. Slow down. Wait, I thought that Johnny was so good as a drunk Klingon. (laughs) He was was chewing a bit of scenery. Yeah. yeah. But see, that's the thing. It was against type, which makes these characters great when they have a chance to just get out of that skin of the character that they know and play something different. Yeah. Another reference dropped in. We had some movie references, and we have a Betty Grable reference because Betty Grable kind of – I mean, even now, Betty Grable is sort of known as an iconic pinup model and actress. And uh, Chakotay is just supposed to stand there holding the blood wine because Janeway's like, don't drink it, and then leaves. And he's just standing there holding it. How long is this standoff going to work with these Klingons? I hate to say it, but he was literally left holding the bag. He was. He was. Yeah. yeah. Still just blows my mind that Holodeck can create dangerous explosions with the safety protocols off. Like, I wonder if that was the first hack that somebody did when the Holodeck was a new thing. It was like, wow, we've invented the Holodeck. Cool. Let's make it deadly. <laughs> you know? Thank you for saying yeah. that. Really? I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. that's like playing. Let's, like, let's have a football game, except we're all, like, laced with explosives. Yeah. <laughs> Right? Doesn't make oh, the tackle, and he turns into all. a billion pieces, but they got the first down, but no one cares because no one exists anymore because they're all smoke. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Good moment of everybody coming out of the reality of the holodeck and into their own reality. I, I like that transition. Okay. So going back to the, you know, the, the, the gun thing, because I like seeing weapons mm-hmm. and I like seeing how they're properly used yeah. or I have an issue with how right. they're improperly used. But gun punching is one of the things that's a really big pet peeve of mine. Like, so when actors oh, punch forward, yeah. like, I'm going to make the gun f- shoot harder and faster if I punch forward with shooting. It doesn't work yeah. out. and It makes it look very amateur. So I'm sorry, Roxanne, but your gun punching as Brigitte, it just didn't work for me. And also, never put a gun and a rifle in the same situation where they're firing at the same target because the gun will never out-distance a rifle ever in the history of ever. Very true. Yeah. Yep. Good point. There's going to be a lot of cleanup to do on Voyager. Like, I don't know, a new sickbay? They did just set off a bomb under <laughs> part of it. <laughs> Impressive. And uh, the whole idea of a holographic pregnancy, that is just weird because remember this is not in the reality of the game this is in the reality of voyager after milana is aware that she is balana mm-hmm. and then okay so the holodeck can create clothes and and objects presumably but a a pregnancy like what is the holodeck actually doing to somebody's physiology there right i don't don't i i probably don't want to know but no, you're getting all the emails weird... for that one. So Okay, all right. Yeah. yeah. So here's going back to the armband thing, the Nazi armband thing. Because in this second episode, the Capitan mm-hmm. is standing right next to the biggest swastika that you see in the show. If they're gonna go and commit to that, yeah. why not commit to the yeah. armbands? Right. That that was one of those that I looked at and I was like, Oh wow, they really do prominently yeah. display. It's not here. like they didn't yeah. show it anywhere. I mean, that guy was talking about this mm-hmm. is the symbol of the purity of our movement and our race. Like, oh my God, are you serious? So what's one armband gonna do? Yeah. 
Yeah. The doctor says to Neelix, I'll, I'll reattach any severed limbs. <laughs> and I thought, wow, okay, a moment ago, you didn't have time <laughs> to do anything. Okay, and now sickbay is blown up, by the way. Yeah. So, uh, Neelix, please be careful. Very good scene between Janeway and Carr where he's kind of laying out his philosophy and uh, pretty cool that even Carr is impressed with humans mm -hmm. and their ability to survive and adapt. That was kind of cool. A lot of that smacks of, of Gorkon talking about like preserving, you know, the Klingon culture and people after Praxis was destroyed in Star Trek six, you know, oh, yeah. like he has to, they, the Klingons finally actually have to negotiate a truce for peace because if they don't, then they die with the current generation. So I'm like, okay, that's kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is a good point. I did wonder if the Herogen really need holodeck technology because they already have some pretty advanced technology like neural implants yeah. <laughs> that can make you believe you're somebody else. So that was okay. And then they're in the holodeck, and, and I guess fake wine must taste terrible. <laughs> but the point is you can't actually drink it. So even if the holodeck is creating it, it is a thing you can drink just like all the other objects around you have mass and take up room. So why isn't the computer just replicating a legit recipe for Chateau Latour 1929 instead of the bottle and then something that is not its correct contents? If, mm. if you're replicating, replicating. You know what I'm saying? Yes. All right. So, okay. So I know this is very in the weeds, but when you say yeah. like Chateau Latour 1929, how does the... <laughs> Does the holodeck know that? Like, it, you yeah. know, like, does it, does it actually have an algorithm to not only create the wine when it was first bottled, but then aged and then aerated yeah. and then served? Well, but here's the thing. You could take the chemistry of that aged aerated wine mm -hmm. and then just tell the computer, much like Robbie the Robot in Forbidden Planet, <laughs> make 500 gallons of that. <laughs> all right. And that, that's, that's all you need. Hey, if everyone looks the same it. in the holodeck, why can't they make holodeck wine taste right? Right. So Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool to see Seven stand up to the Herogen uh, when she is, you know, herself and not, uh, not Mademoiselle Neuf. Yeah. But I did wonder if logic is actually irrelevant here. I think the logic is pretty relevant. <laughs> so uh, because we are talking about life and death. Interesting how Tarange can be swayed so easily by a human holodeck character. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I think the Nazi captain, he is telling Tarange what he already wants to hear. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, he's he's easy to bend like that. The captain's speech is pretty chilling. I mean, when you really think yeah. about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For real, for real. I thought Tom looked great and very natural in the World War II simulation. When he and Jerry are like walking down the cobblestone street, the way he's like leaning into the part, you can almost see Jerry break for a second. She's like, you're like enjoying this way too much. Uh, <laughs> right, you know, yeah, kind of true. Yeah, he just, he, he looks so relaxed and like he belongs there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. A little bit of that rubbed off. I, I did wonder why are all these Herogen getting taken down by holographic bullets? Uh, and, and I get it. The safety protocols are off, but I thought Herogen armor was super strong and they already were walking into a battle kind of, you know, prepared. So stormtroopers were taken out by arrows. It's that <laughs> thing. <laughs> that's, you know, that's how it works. It works that yeah, way. The, the, yeah. The, the weapons work. Uh, they're as strong as the plot needs them to be. Exactly. Harry Kim, if you're going to blow up all the hollow emitters, how about now and not nine minutes from now? True. How, how about four minutes from now? How about a minute and a half? What, whatever. Meet me somewhere in the middle. Seven of nine minutes from now. So 
seven seven See. of nine minutes from now would have been great. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very interesting visual of the holographic soldier with no legs and gets pulled back into the, the uh, hologram area. That was a very arresting and very interesting image. It was. And, and uh, again, with the Saving Private Ryan energy, when I saw that, I'm like, so mm-hmm. is this a soldier that had his legs violently mm-hmm. removed you know, mm-hmm. in an explosion? But it wasn't. And so it's like, that was neat. I got it's like I got caught yeah. in that. I was like, oh, okay, okay, that was cool. All yeah. right, that was well yeah, done. Absolutely yeah. worked mm-hmm. in that case, and a very clever ruse for Jane Way to fool uh, Tarange as uh, as she did. But what was it exactly? Was it like a hologram curtain? Because she could see Tarange and Tarange could see her. But as soon as he walked into, what was it? Just like a, a, a thin veil of distortion. Well, it's just the edge where the hollow emitter ended. Right. So she had just mapped out in her head, like, oh, wait, the emitter ends there. So theoretically, he could have fired his weapon and no bullet would have hit her because he he would be firing past the point that the hollow emitter ended. That would have been cool if she just stood there and she's like, go ahead, fire. And it just disappeared. I'd be like, oh, right, right. But she did need the upper hand to knock him out. True. That was kind of cool, right. too. Okay. Yeah. Look, at, at the end of this episode, okay, let, let, let's put it together. We got Klingons with Batless fighting Nazis with guns. We got photonic grenades. We have our cast dressed as a French resistance only in Star Trek, folks. Only in Star Trek. John, you and I being the James Bond fans, Moonraker has nothing on the end of this episode. <laughs> nope. Not a thing. Spin-off proposal. Klingon Neelix goes up against DS9's Klingon chef in the Great Klingon Bake Off. We will get right back to the killing game after a word from this week's sponsor, Master Replicas. Yes, you heard it. We are so glad to have them back. Well, well they're new, but they're kind of back. Uh, yes, Master Replicas has the collection of tiny starships that we know and love. Yes, they have the incredible collection of ships that you may remember from Eagle Moss. That's why this is kind of a returning member of the family here. There's something like 400 unique models from Star Trek alone, which is way more than any other franchise. But but wait, the franchises don't stop there because Master Replicas also has ships from your other favorite series like, oh, I don't know, Doctor Who and Alien and Stargate and uh, still trying to get my hands on those Space 1999 ships, of course. So what other franchise can you think of that has over 400 ships? Well, you can't because Star Trek has got it and Master Replicas has got those ships. Now, I know when they went offline as a production, it, it was kind of very heartbreaking. But And here's an important detail. Like, all those beautiful hand-finished ships, because they were, they were, you know, there were some plastic, mm-hmm. some metal combined, hand-painted, you know, excruciatingly, painstakingly detailed. They're not being made anymore, John. Ooh. Yes, you that's know? that's tragic. Those yeah. particular ships and Master yeah. Replicas, yeah. well, they they found and they were able to reclaim a lot of the old stock mm-hmm. from those ships. And now they're selling it off. I think that's yeah. that's an opportunity for a lot of you collectors out there, you know, to take advantage of. They've got most things. So if you want to get any of like say the enterprises that you're missing or some of the Voyager selections or the Defiant, you know, some of the XL selections, you know, mm-hmm. make sure that you take a look at their website. Now, we're not sure if you'll be able to get them in the future and uh, not at these prices because the ones on eBay, they are 
they're fleecing you with marked up prices yes. for those kind of collectibles, right? They're oh, as soon as they left the market, you, yeah, yeah, you go to eBay as soon as they're gone. You're like, oh, I missed my chance to get it, and I was like, right. well, I guess I'm never getting that. But right. but now you can. Now you can. That's now you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a cool part. And look, you already know about the quality and detail of these tiny starships. They are so good and whenever possible they were made using the original cg models and of course consulting with the people who originally designed them these are as close you can get to the visual effects of those shows and i also love you know we didn't even mention the the magazines and all the other details the little stands that come with them they just are such a high quality product now master replicas have only got the rights to sell these for a certain amount of time. And how long, you may ask me? Well, we're not totally sure, but stick with us because we will update you right here on the show and in our Discord in the meantime. So don't delay. Go to masterreplicas.com. Tell them Mission Log sent you when you place your first order. And make sure, even if you're not placing an order right now, go to masterreplicas.com and sign up for the newsletter so that way you will be the first to know about special promotions, exclusive drops. That address again is masterreplicas.com. All right, in our previous episodes about the Herogen, the Herogen arc that we are in here in Voyager, we discussed how the Herogen were, well, they were a bit of a monoculture, <laughs> shall we say. True. They're obsessed with the hunt. We know that. that. That whole conversation carried over to After Dark and carried over to our Discord. And we kind of joked about it. Like, where are the Herogen scientists? Where are the doctors? Where are the shipbuilders? Where are the philosophers? And I like that at least now we get a taste of that. And they are still a bit of a monoculture. They are still all driven by the same goal and the same, I, I guess, like moral value of, you know, other species being prey. But you've got a doctor and you've got a leader who's at least considering the big picture instead of just who gets killed next. Think about the number of times that he actually calls off his troops like no no don't kill them they're hostages nope don't kill them now and don't kill them now either and there's at least maybe some hope for the future with a young herogen who could possibly change things for his people now i i hope that it doesn't just end up as a uh as a trophy hanging on a wall, like Janeway said. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Are you, are you hopeful in the least about this? I wish that Tarange, he would have gone a different way. You know, I wish that Janeway, he and Janeway could have worked something out where Tarange was oh, like the yeah. heir apparent to Carr's vision mm -hmm. as opposed to being a villain and trying to thwart Carr's vision. Because I think that he actually believed it. It's just that yeah. there are all these cultural pressures that, you know, in, in real time, many people face when it comes to trying to establish, you know, that the identity of choosing the right thing to do for the right reasons. And, and Carr was going forward with that. I just don't think that Tarange was really open-minded about that decision. Yeah. Well, and maybe then by story logic, he's the one who either has to die or has to be taken from his position of authority. And you've got to make room now for this 
younger generation, you know, fresh ideas mm-hmm. uh, to come in <laughs> be and, and actually, sure. yeah, yeah, right, yeah. and actually be able to change things. Maybe he can, or, or or maybe he's not in a position that he can yet. But even if he can get his small crew. Because he, he is the person in front. He is the Herogen that now apparently is at least in charge of one of these ships. So maybe they'll get to it with the, uh, with the holodeck. If Carr believes this, you can't be just an isolated, you know, an isolated person that believes this. I mean, that's... Yeah, I, you know, I don't think so, yeah. This doesn't really exist in a vacuum because I think with... With the way that all cultures evolve, eventually you're going to have a, a bunch of believers that know that something mm-hmm. has to change or the extinction possibility is, you know, is a legitimate existential threat. So, yeah, if it's not Carr, then who else? And will be able to will we ever meet this Herogen? later on well you know that's such a an interesting idea because so far we've only met herogen who are basically working in pairs Mm -hmm. an alpha and a beta they're in a ship and they go hunt and you kind of assume that that is how most herogen operate but what is the bigger hierarchy right what what's the the bigger organization of the Herogen government or Herogen services, you know, people who do things to support this way of life. I made the case that you can't, you might be able to form a culture this way, but you can't sustain a society this way, where right. it's just always hunt, kill, hunt, kill, hunt, kill. If you're going to grow to the extent that you have starships and, you know, advanced weapons and all all, you know, all the trappings that come with this, you actually have to encourage creative thinking. And uh, there have to be some Herogen somewhere who can be creative and think beyond just solely what they feel like their, their imperative is. And by the way, this is just a very small point, but uh, basically Janeway hands this young Herogen a, a video game. You know, she's handing him the xbox 9000 and saying here i got you this now go play with this instead of killing people mm-hmm. and and i kind of thought about if you remember in discussing the context around random thoughts where you had a culture that had outlawed certain ideas because the ideas to them were just too dangerous so they they would rather ban them instead of try to deal with them and we, we discussed here and offline when we were in Discord and in our After Dark sessions, the idea that maybe being creative with the outlet is necessary. So if people are walking around with these thoughts, you actually have to have the place for them to be expressed. And I, I kind of thought of this as a little bit of uh, uh, maybe a bookend to that. They're, they're definitely not connected in terms of story. But thematically, if that's an episode saying, what happens if you ban the idea? Here we've got Got Janeway saying, "Go get it all out. Go mm-hmm. go get it all out, but get it out in this healthier way." And I'm just going to leave this with you, and the rest is up to you. I mean, there is a bit of concern, like in the in the modern video gaming industry, where experts in the field of like psychology and behavioral mechanics are somewhat concerned about the reality of video games nowadays, especially like virtual reality, where people can perfect their Mm. particular scheme, you know, perfect their abilities to do certain things, either positively or negatively when it comes to acting out a fantasy, because the software is so good that it allows you to 
truly escape into that particular either entertainment or perversion that you like. So that's something that has to be really considered here with the Herojin because they can, again, expertly perfect their ability to engage certain species and eliminate them because they have practiced that safely and with such exactness over and over and over again. So that, like again, all technology, and this is just my opinion, but all technology has the potential to either help or harm based on the user's intent. So hopefully, and and that's the olive branch that Janeway's really extending the Herogen Alpha, Beta, Charlie, whoever the Charlie is in this situation, the person that (laughs) she treated with at the end, she's trusting this particular Herogen, who is the new Alpha of this particular cult, to be able Mm -hmm. to use it responsibly. But will they? Because Carr is an individual thinker. Yeah. Right? Well, and, and that's the difficulty then. Is because even if you hand this uh, – let's call him Charlie because mm-hmm. I think that's fun. Even <laughs> if you hand Charlie the uh, the holodeck and even if he gets some buy-in from other Herogen, like, this is great. We can just keep hunting and keep creating adversaries and, and do this. You also have to have another voice from the outside that says, all right, while you're doing that, that actually takes the place of – the hunt in real life because meanwhile in real life we actually have to build a civilization right as opposed to what i think might happen which is you have this technology you can carry on the hunt in your leisure time and that's only in between times that you are hunting for real <laughs> out in the delta quadrant so that uh, there might be a uh, a misuse of this but that also creates a a possible schism in the herosian culture that are traditionalists versus modernists. You know, the modernists understand yeah. that they have to move forward with this new mechanism in place in order to preserve their society and their cultural identity, but at the same time, you know, evolve as a people. But the traditionalists, there are always traditionalists that say, no, unless it's done the old-fashioned, original, OG way, then it's not pure. Yeah. It's not real. And I think that's what Taranj was, like, hearing from the Capitans. Like, you are dealing with impure races, you yeah. are the master race. Unless you are acting like the master race, then you are the impure race. So the traditionalists yeah. always voice that opinion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I do want to uh, – this is really not a, a major point, but I just want to bring it up because it was interesting to me. Why did the Herogen pick the losing side in World War II? Because I, I get that philosophically they're more closely identified with Nazis. They would probably see them and say, oh, yeah, sure, that, that's more like us. But then what was the point of the game? To see if they could change history? Because they already knew what was going to happen. They already knew that the Americans were going to be on their way to liberate France. They already knew, presumably, what the outcome of World War II would be. So was it just to see what it's like to be on the losing side or to see if they could upend it? What do you think? Well, you know, that's, it's a really interesting question. And the way I saw it was it's – I don't think that they chose based on who won or lost. I think they chose based on the philosophy of why the Nazi empire, the Nazi, the Third Reich rose to such power mm-hmm. so quickly and lost. You know, mm-hmm. so I think the Herogen were – or at least Carl was looking at it from a standpoint of – again, this is just my read on it. He's looking at it in the standpoint of from 1936 to 1943, 44, you know, ostensibly mm-hmm. the, the Nazi, the Third Reich was at its 
its furthest, you know, in its widest expanse of influence, you know, in terms of Europe, in terms mm-hmm. of South and Africa, you know, and in terms of, yeah. you know, their reach and their scope and their, you know, their ability to be able to like sustain, you know, their power and dominance, you know, over most of Europe. But then the decline was so quick, you know, 44, 45, you know, that was yeah. really like the end, you know, after Stalingrad, that was it. That was the end of the Nazi regime's expanse. And I mm-hmm. think that it was like cars, like, how did this superpower that basically rose from like the ashes of World War One mm-hmm. rise to such prominence and such power so quickly and then also lose such power so quickly? And I think it's because he saw in the Nazi in, in the Third Reich that Hitler wasn't able to adapt. He wasn't able to change. Mm. And All right, co- so maybe the experience is a learning moment for everybody who is under Kara's command. I so think Kara can yeah. see this. Okay, I think that's like, what he no, was no, getting no. at. You know, yeah, play this out because then you will see what happens to a powerful regime that can then be taken down. Exactly, every empire uh-huh. in some way or shape or form reached its apex, but then the hubris caused them to decline rapidly because it was unsustainable. So I think that what he was looking at from the Nazis is like, okay, how did these little bands of French resistance, these pockets of fighters bring down like literally like Europe's like greatest military force, like in history, how did they do it? Yeah. And right. And as the Herogen, if we assume that we are to be this power, then we have to understand that there are all these little pockets of resistance fighters out there that are going to try and bring our empire, you know, low, you know, to its knees. And if we don't see that coming, then we won't be able to prevent it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, let's think about it. Of course, we're not going to be able to summarize World War II in our podcast here. But, you know, the, there were economic and strategic realities that also greatly influenced the, the outcome of the war. Sure. But I think maybe in discussing this and uh, Carr's view of what happened in the Third Reich, any sort of learning moments from that, it, it is partly that they fell apart because of their inflexibility, that that, that was a regime that was unsustainable mm-hmm. because of its built-in philosophy. Right. And that kind of leads me to another point. I, and I'll leave out a big portion of the dialogue between the Alpha and Beta Herogen between Carr and Tarantz here. But I really want to focus on the scene in Janeway's ready room where Carr is spelling out his philosophy. And he says, we allowed our predatory instincts to dominate us. We've become a solitary race, isolated. We spread ourselves too thin. And here's the important thing. We're no longer a culture. We have no identity. Aha. So the question then becomes, who are you? when you no longer have something to hunt, or may I replace the word hunt with hate? Sure. Do you have an identity or are you purely defined by the other that isn't like you, that is weaker or less worthy in your eyes than you? And I know that these are just aliens on a spaceship and a sci-fi show from the 90s, but I can think of a lot of modern day parallels to this exchange. I see, John, but they're not. And, and, and the thing is, like, the, what we talk about all the time here is that Star Trek is at its most effective storytelling when we use the alien analogy to reflect our own, right, to reflect yeah. our own as a society. And I think that just like I brought up the Klingons, 
It's just like Praxis. Like, if the Klingons aren't a military power, what are they? Mm -hmm. Because the monoculture has reshaped their culture to a point where it's either they're the most powerful military in the known galaxy or they're nothing. Right? There are no musicians. There are no lawyers. There are no doctors. It's just the military machine. You take that away, you take away their culture and they take away that identity. And what's left? Right. And I think that this is what Carr is actually fighting for. He's like, if you take away, because he said that he said this to Taranj, like everywhere we go, we exhaust all of our resources to the point where we have to move on to somewhere else. Why can't Mm -hmm. we just stop doing this and actually build a culture where we can be self-sustaining? Yeah. Because if we don't do that, then eventually everywhere we go, we're going to turn around and there's just going to be nothing left for us to hunt. And if we don't have anything to hunt, then we lose everything. There is one thing that I found problematic, and maybe it's me. Maybe I'm a little bit too sensitive to to these types Mm. of uh, details, but I Mm. did find a bit of subliminal racism in this episode. Oh. Okay. Okay. Subliminal racism and or bigotry in the characters and the way that they were framed. So, Uh I mean, am I reading too much into this, or is there something there when – the only quote unquote Latino woman in the cast is pregnant in this episode. The mm-hmm. Asian surprises the American because he speaks English. Mm-hmm. The Klingon warriors toss the only bag of blood wine alcohol they have to the Native American. Uh-huh. I mean, is it? And there's also that, of course, the, the only possibility and the reason why that Seven or Deneuf would have been chosen as a double agent is because she's the most Aryan, most attractive. And of course, she's German. Yeah. She would have to be German, right? Yeah. Or the, the, yeah. the assumed German or double agent in this. So I'm just like, I know that it's probably not there. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I can't help seeing what I'm seeing. Well, I, I don't think you're wrong to see it. I, I think that that sort of prejudice is probably what they were exploring in the script because it's true to the time. I mean, I, I, I can't really speak to all of it, but I feel like in that scene where Tom slash uh, Bobby, the, the GI character, yeah. Bobby, yeah, yeah, encounters Harry Kim in the corridor – well, in World War II, if you're still at war with an Asian empire on the other side of the Pacific, then this is probably something that would give you pause to see in the reality of St. Clair, France. So I, I, like, I, I get it, and that's not to make that an excuse for the people who actually experienced that in the 1940s. But I think the script is leaning into that to say, like, Oh, no, this is a reaction that could very well have happened because Bobby, not Tom Paris, Bobby is seeing somebody who is very much out of place right. from his point of view. Oh, I get that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but it brings up, yeah, it, it, but, but I, it, but, but there are choices that are made here about how our cast is dispersed and the roles that they play. It just reminds me of this, this really good, I think they handled it in this other, well, in Captain America, the first adventure, they handled a scene like this, mm-hmm. I think with a little bit more deftness to it. So there's a scene mm-hmm. where Captain America and Happy Hogan and a bunch of like all these other characters, they go to save a bunch of like World War II POWs. One of them is a Japanese man who ends up being like part of like Captain America's entourage. And uh, Happy Hogan, the character, um, he says, we're supposed to free all of them and looks at the Japanese guy. 
And he pulls out his dog tags. He goes, I'm from Fresno, Ace. Right? You know, uh-huh. like, it's a yeah, great scene. Yeah, I'm, I'm, right. I'm not doing it justice. Please look yeah. it up, like, online. But it's a great scene because the way I took a lot of this is just kind of like that typical 90s, I'm sorry to say this, it's, 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 it's kind of like typical lazy writing humor, you know, to, yeah. to, to write these stereotypes in such a way where, well, yeah, of course this would be the case because why wouldn't it be? But it doesn't have to be because you can write – you don't have to write it in such a fashion. That's very true. Well, I tell you what, as a side note, let me leave you with this little bit of a silver lining, which is that in the reality of the production of the show, and I left this out of trivia because I thought it might fit here as an aside, Joe and Brannon left Harry Kim out of this script because they felt like they had their stronger characters on the holodeck and they just didn't care what happened to Harry Kim, right? But the episode came up short. And they needed to write scenes about what was happening on Voyager. And the only character left on Voyager who they could write for would be Harry Kim. So they wrote all these scenes for him where he ends up confronting the Herojin. He ends up saving the day. He ends up solving the puzzle, essentially. And they said, oh, my, here's the character that we needed all along. Now we're excited to write for Harry Kim. And going forward, we're not going to relegate him into the character box that we don't want to explore. So hopefully this is a big turning point. Let's see if Norman and John have kept enjoying this episode as time goes by. Well, that was quite the recap, the observations, and the discussion. And if you've made it this far, congratulations. You win a prize. The prize is you get to hear what we actually have to say as we're wrapping up this episode. Hey, because as we do with uh, – Yeah, <laughs> right, big, big episode, big podcast. Yeah. As we do with every Mission Log episode, you know, we take a look at the morals, meanings, and messages. But first, we take a look at – does this episode hold up and does it withstand the test of time? There's a lot to get to. It's a phenomenally huge two-part episode. And let's see if John can bring us home. All right. I am all over the map on this one. And here's why. Okay. As I mentioned earlier that I remembered loving this when I first saw it. And visually, it just stuck with me. I mean, the cast, the sets, the wardrobe, the direction, just all of it looks fantastic and then i rewatched it really two and a half times for our purposes here yes yeah that's a lot yeah that's a lot it is (laughs) and doing it the way that we do it for mission log where you're taking notes and you're trying to kind of think ahead what will make a good discussion point how do i actually wrap my arms around this and i have to be a bit more critical for it and i felt like the premise of this episode the setup to get us into the story It is just a lot to swallow because a show like Star Trek comes along and it makes certain asks of the audience. You have to accept all of those asks to move forward, but then something else comes along to ask you more and it just gets very overwhelming. All right. So the Herogen took over how how long ago and how exactly did they do that and they've they've mastered this kind of implant technology that changes just enough of somebody's personality that they don't know who they are but they're in the holodeck and they can live out that reality and they can still perfectly play their roles and they still kind of have their personality like there's just so much that is going on 
even to get you into the story. Why don't they just have their own holodecks by now? Because apparently they have some technology. They got big guns, they got big ships, and they got this implant technology as well. Um, they also have a giant antenna array. They, they have a giant antenna array, formerly giant mm-hmm. antenna array. And then they chose the losing side of World War II, but I, I think that was an interesting discussion point. It's just all very weird. The parallels between the holodeck characters and their real selves are often very clever. I mean, especially with Seven being the headstrong one and not above suspicion, good choices that fit her actual character within the context of Voyager. And there's also just like a lot of business in parts one and two in getting us from part one to part two. Feels like a lot of detail to fill space. A lot of the Klingon stuff just feels very silly to me, especially that we keep going back to it. All that said, I I still kind of love this episode. <laughs> like, it, it's wacky, it's weird, and I'm already predisposed to enjoying World War II history, even the fictional kind. And I have a soft spot for this kind of swing for the fences Star Trek story. Because I feel like if we can have space hippies and space gangsters and a whole Nazi planet, then why not this? Not all at the same time, maybe, but every now and then, sure, fine. It, it, it may be short on substance. It may feel like Brannon and Joe just got out all the action figures and dumped them out onto a table together to make a story. And here's my imitation of the writing room. It it was like, look, it's a Herogen and a 1940s lounge singer. And here's G.I. Joe and Klingons and Nazis. It may ultimately be inconsequential. And it should not by any means be taken as a way to explain the Star Trek universe as an episode. So maybe it doesn't really hold up as a slice of Star Trek, but more as an Elseworlds comic book or or just that one time the character is completely off the leash and let them do anything. So it may not be a great episode in those terms, but by my estimation, it is a really cool episode. <laughs> and I, And I have to say that on those multiple rewatches, It's another one of those times that I felt kind of lukewarm about it the first time. And then by the second time, I got more engaged by the details and I liked it even more. And how many times have I said on Mission Log, like, well, here's an episode that worked okay, but then on the rewatch, it didn't hold up. Mm -hmm. This to me was the opposite. So, so there you are. Uh, That's a lot to say that, yeah, I'm going to give this one a pass because I know I'll enjoy it when I watch it again. (laughs) What about you, Norman? The one thing that I I think that uh, I disagree with you on, just just in terms of what I would have liked to have seen, I would have liked to have seen the characters done differently where their personalities weren't specifically paralleling the characters that they were in the holodeck. I think if you're going to create an Elseworlds event, you know, and in a story that you can basically do anything that you want with the characters, take the characters from who they are and turn them into something that they're not. That's why I Mm -hmm. love Neelix in this, because Neelix is not a Klingon, but let Johnny go for it. And he did. And he was amazing (laughs) in the small, like portion of Klingon attitude and, and, you know, the just embracing being in the makeup and all that kind of stuff. I thought that Kate was great in the beginning too, as a Klingon, just the look of it. Yeah. So (laughs) I I would have rather like them 
swing for the fences in a different way where you're taking all of the crew and dumping the whole dynamic that we know on its head and then just allow these characters to interact in a way we've never seen them do it before. That's what I think would have saved this episode for me. I mean, it's mm, it's really mm-hmm. kind of like a, a tale of two episodes. You know, part one, there's a very specific part one, and there is a very specific part two. Yeah. And I think that the total does not equal the sum of its parts. I think that oh, part one, I think, outstrips part two in every way. Mm. In every way. I love the conceit of this romanticized World War II setting, a la Casablanca that we've talked about. I love that you actually used actual characters of the Maquis as the actual Maquis. Because <laughs> yes. that's what they were named from, from France, World War II, the resistance yeah. fighters of suburban France. You know, I wish that they were all that way. I, like, I would have loved to have seen Chakotay as head of the Maquis yeah. of France, yeah, right? because that's yeah. who he was. You know, in the 24th century, I, I, I love that. I love the production. I love the pacing. I love everything that David Livingston set up. And it just didn't really continue that the strength of of what they set up in one into. Mm. And I'm not sure if it's again, like I'm used to David Livingston's directions. I'm not really uh, a student of or really understand where Victor Lobel was coming from with his direction. Mm-hmm. Although I do think in the pale moonlight regardless of my opinion of what happened at the end is one of the best directed episodes of star Trek, you know? So yeah, that's yeah. just, again, these are, you know, these are flavors that are coming into conflict with each other. I think that honestly, John, I think that at the end of the day, this could have been an incredibly good single episode. I see. I, I think you're right. Like it, it it's a, an episode plus if they, yeah. if they had the freedom that you do today to make streaming shows however long you want. This could have been like a 65-minute episode or a 70-minute mm-hmm. episode. But once you go past that 45, 46-minute format for a 90s commercial TV show, and then your only choice is, well, now we have to make it another episode. I feel like you could have trimmed this down, gotten across everything that you needed to, made it really tight, really fun, and just stuck with exactly all these good points that you're making. Yeah, I I agree. And I wish we had that format at the time. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we didn't. Um, But I do think that with a little bit more like um, judicious editing and maybe some sacrifices and just some of the character or lack thereof development, I think that we could have gotten a really incredible, fast-paced, tight, no-fat episode that still has the Roddenberry-esque message. Yeah. Now, again, you know, this comes from kind of like the, or at least my kind of like elitist hindsight of, of course, this could have been done this way after watching it, you know, 25 (laughs) years later, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, but you're right. This episode is incredibly entertaining. It's bombastic. It's fun. It's memorable. But does that make the episode Star Trek? We Time and time again, uh, at the very end of the analysis, I can watch other series that are fun and bombastic and science fiction with aliens, with mm-hmm. ships, with great special effects, with everything that this episode has, but without the expectation of Star Trek. Right. Right. And that's right. the difference. That's the difference. I love seeing Hirogen in Nazi uniforms. I love seeing 
all of the different anachronistic contextual tonal collisions that are happening in this. It's beautiful. It's yeah. wonderful. It's yeah. it's so it's like you're swinging for the fences and you're hitting on a lot of things except <laughs> for me being entertained doesn't mean it's Star Trek. It's uh-huh. entertainment. Yeah. And I would rather have more Star Trek in my story than just an incredibly well-produced ubiquitous science fiction story. See, I thought about that. You, you could take, you, you could strip all the Star Trek out of this, strip the Star Trek characters and setting out of this, and you could just make this a standalone sci-fi movie. Absolutely, you know, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, but we've got to look for morals, meanings, messages here. And, and here's the thing: it, there doesn't really have to be one. Maybe if this is a one-off, it's okay. If there's not, seriously, we can. Maybe do without one from time to time, but but this is Mission Log, and as weird and wacky as this episode is, and as much as I'm glad to just chalk it up as a romp, I actually do think there's a pretty Star Trek message at the heart of it. you got to dig through. You, you've got to poke around and, and get through two episodes of this wild action figure-driven romp. Here's the thing. We've had nothing but bad run-ins with the Herogens so far. But each time we get just a tiny bit closer to being able to find some common ground to break through and find some room to negotiate. We don't have to let every encounter turn into a bloodbath. And I love Janeway's simultaneous ability to be tough and stand up for humanity while she's also truly being able to listen and find compromise in novel places. Maybe she just got lucky. She found that one Herogen who was having a rough day and just like maybe this isn't all worth it also see my comments in the previous section about video games uh, you know Janeway just handed the Herogen the ultimate game set to not just satisfy their primal needs to hunt but also to hopefully show them a way forward so maybe there's a little bit of bridge building here here's a, uh, a line that we get from uh, Carr he says to uh, Tarange. If you took the time to study your prey to understand its behavior, you might learn something. Each prey exposes us to another way of life and makes us reevaluate our own. Have you considered our future? What will become of us when we have hunted the territory to exhaustion? A way of life that hasn't changed for a thousand years. Species that don't change die. All right, remember, there are no Herogen, there is no Voyager, there is no Delta Quadrant <laughs> in reality. Well, there is a quadrant we can call the Delta Quadrant, but in the reality of the show, there isn't. So this all ultimately has to reflect on us. What does this say about us? And I like the philosophical heart of this Herogen car, because like we've said before, you might be able to win a few battles and start a new regime by conquering, but you can't maintain a civilization that way. It's easier to destroy than it is to create. But doing the hard creative work, the kind that isn't paranoid of its enemies all the time, is the only way to grow and thrive. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a really good selection of quotes to kind of show what I, I, I believe that uh, is the message of this. I know mm-hmm. – um, it it was it was a little bit harder to see in the first half. I saw it in the second half with Carr and with Janeway. And it really kind of like asked the question, is it too late to change one's course? One being kind of like a culture or a people. Mm-hmm. Carr has the right idea, right? 
He just can't. The thing is that he just can't abandon a life's worth of cultural programming in order to bring his idea to fruition in the right way. He wants to talk it through. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for generations, he's been taught to go about it in the Herogen hunt mentality. And the way that he kind of confesses to Janeway, he says to Janeway, my people are hunting themselves into extinction. Your holodeck technology might offer us an alternative, a new way of life. That scene, I think, is the pivotal scene of both of these episodes. It starts in in, in part one with Carr and Tarange and mm-hmm. trying to have Tarange like, buy in on Carr's idea. But it really does culminate with trying to explain to Janeway why he's trying to change not only his mentality, but the future of his people. And he said to Janeway at the end of this exchange, he says, your people have faced extinction many times, but you've always managed to avoid it. You seem to recognize the need for change. And that's the line that really kind of sparked this idea in me about looking at this across Star Trek. Hmm. This is a brilliant kernel of an idea. But I think that it's not something that they pushed for in this episode, and I think that we should have explored that a little bit more because this is in line with one of Star Trek's greatest traditions, as you and I have talked about before, using the alien species as the analog for what we as humanity have overcome in order to reach the promise of the Federation and Starfleet in our future. So I want to requote this again. You seem to recognize the need for change. This is the conversation I think that needed to be explored further. Mm. This is the message that gives the Herogen our sympathy. Mm-hmm. It's a race that's in, it's unable to prevent its own destruction, right? If they go a certain way. Now, here's the thing that like reaches back into kind of like the history of Star Trek as we've seen it. We understood this and accepted this with the Klingons in Star Trek VI with Gorkhan and then Azat Bor pushing, suing for peace, because if they don't, they will die as a race. Yeah. We saw this with the Cardassians, right? The resistance with Damar and Garrick and Zial, right? They have to change or else the military force of the Cardassians is going to lead them to extinction. You know, we saw that with the Vulcans themselves, right? If they didn't change, if they didn't adopt Surak, then they themselves, even to, when Spock described it, they would have destroyed themselves based on their own violent urges, right? Mm-hmm. So not why the Herogen. Mm-hmm. Right. Not why give them that chance. This entire, you know, sequence of events, you know, what I was thinking brings me all the way back to my favorite episode of Star Trek of all time. Hmm. It's the original series Balance of Terror. The Romulan commander and Kirk are testing each other at this moment in time in the episode. It's in the middle of the episode. And Mark Leonard's, you know, the captain is so exhausted. And when the centurion asks him, If we are the strong, isn't this the signal for war? And Mark Leonard's commander says, must it always be so? How many comrades have we lost in this way? And the centurion says, our portion, commander, is obedience. And then the captain says, obedience, duty, death, and more death. Soon even enough for the praetor's taste. Centurion, I find myself wishing for destruction before we can return. Worry not. Like you, I am too well-trained in my duty to permit it. Too well-trained in my duty to permit it. As is Carr with his duty to the hunt. But he's still open-minded enough to see the greater duty is to the survival of his people. 
like Gorkhan, like Surak, like Damar, like the Romulan commander. It takes a great deal of courage for these cultures to admit that they have to change and even greater courage to stay the course and whether the collective slings and arrows of those in their culture who see change as heresy. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, vis-a-vis. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shadwell, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. These would have been two very different episodes if the Herogen fixated on great food fights in history, rather than armed conflicts. End transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.